when I talk to my wife, or sometimes when I come home and my wife's got something to say, she's usually going to tell it to me as soon as I get in the door. She's not going to wait. I don't know if that's how you all are in your marriages. Um, And my wife sometimes goes, I've got good news and bad news. What do you want? I don't like it when I come home and hear that. Um, I don't know about you. Actually, let's just take a poll real quick. If someone asks you that, raise your hand if you want the bad news first. Raise your hand. My people. (laughs) We got any good news people here? Bob wants the good news. All right. Bob wants the good news. Hey, let me tell you something real quick. I'm going to shine on Bob. Bob signed up for the nursery this morning. Yeah, the problem was there just wasn't any kids that showed up. I tell you what, Bob is however old, I'm not going to give his age, but still signing up for the nursery. Um, but anyway, back to the bad news. I, if, I, if you give me bad news or good news, I want the bad news first. I want to hear it. Let's get it over with. It's like a shot. Just do it. And I think that's kind of how the gospel is. I think that's how the Bible delivers the good news. God gives us the bad news before he gives us the good news. So this morning, I'm going to give you the bad news, then I'm going to give you the good news. The bad news is this. We are all lawbreakers who have fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve to endure the full penalty of the law. That's the bad news. The Bible makes that very clear. The good news is that Jesus was not a lawbreaker. He endured the full penalty of the law for those who would believe. That's the good news. That's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. Gospel meaning euangelion, meaning good news. The bad news is that you're a wretched sinner who deserves hell. The good news is that Jesus died for wretched sinners just like you and I. The reason this is important is, one, it's the most important message you'll ever hear in your life. It's also important this morning because we're going to talk about something called repentance. Repentance. Many of you have heard of it. I think all of you sometime have heard of that word. Not all know how to define it, though. We're going to define it very carefully this morning. A lot of people in the world want God without their sin. They want God on their own terms. They want the good news and they don't want the bad news. But when we repent of our sins, we deal with the bad news first. We look our sin straight in the eye. We confess our sin. If you didn't notice by now, if you have been attending Haynes Creek, we start every single service on a Sunday doing what? Confessing our sin. Because we say, God, I'm going to acknowledge the bad news, but the good news is you've swallowed up the bad news. We confess our iniquity before the Lord because that's how we believe the gospel is presented to us and that's how we believe we worship the living God. Jesus says if we don't do that, if we do that and then we believe in Him, there's good news, there is eternal life. So this morning, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. The parable of the lost sheep. We are taking a little bit week out of uh, John, and we're going to actually look at a text that I think a lot of you should be familiar with. It's just seven verses. Luke 15, I think, is probably one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible because it's got some awesome parables, and they all point to the heart of God. If you found it, please stand for the reading of God's Word. 
Luke chapter 15, and the Holy Spirit says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's pray. Lord God, show us what it means to repent this morning. Show us what it means to be lost and what it means to be found. Father, reveal to us your heart, the joy, the delight you have when a lost sheep turns around and gets found. Father, we know this morning that for all those who profess Jesus as Lord, it was not we who first found you, it was you who came after us. And Father, this morning I pray that for any of those who have not come to repent of their sins and believe in the gospel, I pray that you, your son, the good shepherd, might come after them and save them. And all these things we ask in your precious son's name. Amen. So here's what I'm trying to say this morning. The lost sheep. There it is. When we repent of... No. Okay. There it is. No. Hold on. Hold on. There it is. There it is. God delights to see lost sinners repent of their sins. That's it. Pretty simple. God delights to see lost sinners repent of their sins. I think Luke chapter 15 is unlike any chapter in the entire Bible because all three parables in this chapter reveal how much joy God has when people are saved. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the prodigal son. Did you notice in the passage, he doesn't just end with, and I found it. And he went home. No, no, no. He found it, then he comes home, and he finds people and celebrates the lost sheep. If this passage ended at verse 5, it wouldn't mean quite as much as it would if we didn't have verses 6 and 7. In Luke 15, we get to look into the heart of God. What we're reading is a parable of the kingdom. That means this story is designed to tell us about the character, the will, and the heart of God. And what we see here in this passage is that heaven rejoices more over the repentance of one sinner than over one million people who don't repent but who claim to know Jesus. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Just just the first two. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. <laughs> it's not, not just, no, he's, he's just around the sinners. No, no, no. He eats with the folks. In ancient Near Eastern culture, to eat with someone is to really dignify them. It's almost to honor them. To share a table with them. We see that in the Lord's Supper when we have the, 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 the final banquet 
with our God. The Pharisees don't like mingling with sinners. We kind of infer that. Now, sinners here could mean anything from Gentiles to people who are just seen as unclean. Sinners are unholy. They're outsiders. They're not worthy of the kingdom. And here, Son of God is actually eating with them. Here's the distinction we're supposed to draw here. Pharisees think that God's favor is earned. Jesus knows that God's favor is purely by His grace. Messed up there. By eating with sinners, Jesus says it doesn't matter where you're from, how much money you have, where your job is, how good your health is, what your last name is, how long you've been going to church, the kingdom of God begins with Christ alone. Jonathan Edwards, you knew I had to quote him. We can never pay God for the sins we have committed against Him by anything we can do. Christ has done it for us. And therefore, our hearts must go to Christ for salvation, and we must not go anywhere else. That's it. The bad news begins with what you've done. The good news begins with what Christ did. Salvation is not about what we've done. It's not about what we're doing. It's not about what we're going to do. It's about what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. That is the gospel. Most people in our community, in our country, and in our world, I would dare say, think that their status with God depends upon their daily performance. But God's Word says, you cannot make up for your sin today by living better tomorrow. You cannot make up for your bad behavior yesterday by being nicer today. You can't wipe away what you did a year ago by having a better year now. You don't have the power to change on your own. Once you've committed one sin, you've broken all of God's laws and you're, in, you're under the penalty and you're condemned by God to die forever. So what we do is we become Pharisees. And this is what Pharisees do. Pharisees justify themselves and assume God will forgive them. Every unrepentant sinner is a Pharisee at heart. This is what Christians do. Christians beg for God's forgiveness and believe that Christ is their justification. Self-justification is a subtle thing. Sometimes it's not. But it's unmistakable when you do hear it. Raise your hand in here if you've ever heard a half apology. It usually has a but in it. Okay. I'm sorry if you got your feelings hurt. That's not an apology. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's not what I meant. I'm sorry, I just didn't know. I'm sorry, I was just trying to help. Do you see how many things you could stack on the back of, backside of sorry to completely get rid of the Sorry. We are a self-justifying people. In this case, the Pharisees feel that they're justified before God because their sin just isn't as bad as the sinners. Well, I'm a Baptist, so I'm good. At least I'm not one of those Methodists or Presbyterians. I heard uh, Elder, I was watching a tape of a famous um, African-American pastor who passed away years ago in Lexington, Kentucky. He said, I would rather be with a godly Methodist than with a unrepentant Baptist. And he was a Baptist. Elder D.J. Ward. Um, I think a lot of people go, well, I'm not perfect, but at least I haven't cheated on my wife. Oh, well, I mean, I haven't missed church in a couple of years. I mean, I haven't been all the time, but at least I go. Well, I mean, I, mean, I stretch the truth sometimes, but I haven't told, I've never told a bold-faced lie, I'll tell you that. Do you see how you can gradate sin? The essence of sin is self-justification. No, maybe it is. Okay. 
The essence of sin is self-justification. The essence of the gospel is Christ-justification. The problem is, when you're standing before God on Judgment Day, there ain't nobody else but you, God, and your sin. Mark Twain. Every once in a while, I've got to throw them in there. Not admirable, believing-wise, but great quotes. The church is always trying to get other people to reform. It might not be a bad idea to reform itself a little by way of example. I love Mark Twain. Christians are not perfect law keepers. Christians are those who have laid themselves bare by faith and inviting other peoples to do the same. In this parable, we get to see the heart of God. So let's read verses 3 through 7. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You know, we often think of God as this kind of um, spirit, stoic, unresponsive being who has no feelings. And that's right in some ways. God is unchanging. God doesn't have emotions like we do. But you better be careful because God rejoices over things. God delights over things. We see it right here. It says he comes home, he calls together his friends, and he throws a big party for one sheep. This is virtually the same thing the father does, if you notice, in the parable of the prodigal son. He runs out to his son, he kisses his son, and he comes back, slaughters the fattened calf, and throws a party. All of heaven rejoices when a sinner comes home. Now, there might be somebody, I've heard people today go, um, well, what about the 99 sheep he just left? The parable, the point of this parable is not that Jesus doesn't care about the 99. The point of the parable is how much Jesus values and rejoices over the one. Every saved sinner is worthy of eternal celebration in the kingdom of God. I want to make a real quick point theologically here. Sometimes I get people who ask me, does my mom, does my deceased mom, does my deceased dad, does my deceased grandma, um, are they looking down on me? Um, people have so many weird views on death. I was listening to John McCain's wife the other day, and their dog died this week, and she said, "I, I just, I'm, I'm." It comforted her to know that John's with his dog in heaven. Um, you know, John's not with his dog in heaven. Um, but people really hurt over death. They should. We lament over death, and people will invent things about the people who are... Like, I just watched a show with my kids this week called Coco. You ever seen that? (laughs) You know, didn't know what I was getting into with the Pixar thing. Um, Really creative. I liked it. Uh, But it's all about something that they celebrate, which is Dia de los Muertos. Um, People can come up with a lot of stuff about people who are dead. Um, People... Here's my point. It says that heaven rejoices over a sinner coming to repentance. That's what we just just read. What we need to understand is a couple things. One, people who die do not become angels in heaven. Okay? 
It's got a big word for it. I don't think you'll ever really remember it, but if you want it, here it is. Angelomorphism. It actually has a word to it. That's a heresy. It's called, it's the false idea that human beings become angels. Um, That's not true. Humans never become angels. They don't become guardian angels. Um, I actually think angelomorphism actually sells um, salvation short. You are so much more than an angel. If you actually became an angel, you'd be going down. They're actually, Hebrews 11 says that they're uh, ministering spirits for us. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that people who are saved become guardian angels. Now, in Isaiah, it says that in the new heavens and the new earth, quote unquote, the former things will not come to mind, is what it says. Now, that phrase, former things, in the book of Isaiah is used uh, more than once. And it often, it's, most scholars believe that it means sinful things or old things or things passing away. But as this text shows, the saints in heaven are invested and they are mindful of the things that take place on earth as they pertain to the kingdom of God. Hebrews 12 talks about a great cloud of witnesses. So in heaven, there is no more pain, there is no more sorrow, there is no more sadness. There is only complete joy in Christ. We know that. So souls in heaven are only involved in the affairs of this world insofar as they pertain to the things of God. In other words, if you are living in sin today, if you have not repented of your sin, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, your deceased relative is not hovering over you, whispering in your ear. In fact, if you are living in sin apart from Christ, they are paying you no mind because you are not totally fixed on the kingdom of God and they are constantly 24-7 shouting praises to the king of heaven and you are completely a rebel against him and until you are saved by the gospel, the people in heaven are paying you no mind. Unbelievers oftentimes fixate more on the people in heaven than the king of heaven. And it's our job to find them and go, hey, you want to know how to honor your deceased grandma? Repent of your sins and love Jesus with all your heart, soul, and mind. The best way to bring delight to the people in heaven and to our God is to follow after Jesus. And I assure you, if the people in heaven could talk to us today, they would plead with us to repent of our sins and to follow after Christ. I think the coolest thing in this passage is how much joy the shepherd has over one sheep. When we get to heaven, Jesus isn't going to be like, oh, we got a new batch of people coming into heaven. Hey, look, Golden Street's over there. I prepared the rooms over here. Dinner's at six. I'll see you. Welcome to heaven. No, it's a celebratory festival. If you could make a party every time some people are saved. God cares about every single saint in his kingdom which is more than we can say about earthly rulers here. When we will come to heaven, we will be welcomed with excitement and joy. Now, how do we get to heaven? How do we get found? Well, it says here in verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, those 99 people, I don't think Jesus is saying that there some people can be saved who don't need to be, repent of their sins. I think what he's saying here is that those people already think that they are righteous when they are not. What he's saying is those 99 people are self-justified. This one sinner came to Christ for his justification. So if heaven is rejoicing over repentance, what is repentance? 
That's a pretty ultimate question, I would say. I think we've actually tackled this before. I want to go it over again because we talked and we sang this morning about the red letters. Do you know what the first red letter in the Bible is? Look. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The very now, and I want to be careful here. Red letters don't have any more, don't have more authority in the Bible than the rest of the letters. Let's be careful there. All of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, is God-breathed. Therefore, the words of Paul in the Bible have as much authority to us today as the red letters, which, if, if you're unaware, when people say red letters, they mean the letters in the Bible. That, that's what Jesus said. There are a lot of people in this community, in this state, and in this country, who believe that the red letters in the Bible carry more authority than the letters of Paul or Peter or John. That's not true. Okay? We like to sing about red letters because it's the red letters traditionally in the KJV, I think the first ones that did it, the, the King James Version docu- basically identified the words of Jesus by making those letters red. And, and they're neat. I, th- I think they're, they're great. So long as you understand that what Paul has to say is as important to the church today as what Jesus had to say. But if you had to go by red letters, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So that means repentance, if it's not the, one of the most important, it's one of the most important things you could have to say that Jesus had to say in his earthly ministry. The biblical definition of the word repent is metanoeo, which means to change one's mind or to turn around or to convert. It definitely includes a, a mind change. But if I had to define repentance, I would do it like this. Agreeing with God's just judgment of our sin, hating our sin, and turning away from our sin to the free grace of Jesus Christ. That is how, if I had to come up with the best definition of repentance, it would be those three things. I have to agree that God would be just to send me to hell. If you don't agree with that, you, you, have, you, have, you, don't, you throw repentance out. You don't know what it's about. If you don't agree that God would be just to send you to hell and could be completely good, be completely loving, be completely righteous, be completely holy, and and, and, and abandon us to hell, He would be just to do so. If you can't affirm that, you can't go, you can't trust in Jesus. Two, you have to hate your sin. You have to, there's no way you're going to turn away from sin unless it disgusts you. There's no way you can share the heart of God and love what God loves unless we also hate what God hates, which is sin. And then thirdly, turning away from our sin. Repentance isn't just in the mind and it's not theological. You actually got to turn away from what you're doing. Practice. John Dagg, one of my favorite quotes, to be at ease with sin is a proof that the heart is dead. You know, it's a great prayer to pray every once in a while. Go, God, help me to hate sin. I think that's a wonderful prayer. And if we hate sin, we turn away from it and we seek after Jesus. Here's something to, I've, I've had people today, today go, well, is repentance faith or is, is repentance part of faith? Is it step one? Is it step two? What is it? Here's how I define it. There is no faith without repentance. There is no repentance without faith. That's the best way I can define it. What does Jesus say in Matthew? Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is it? One? Is it two? Well, it's just they're logically distinguishable, but they're part of the same thing. 
Our love for Jesus drives us away from our sin. Our hatred for sin turns us toward Jesus. There are people today who believe that repentance is just one action that you did once and then you got to keep going on your, on your way. Roman Catholics, I mean, not, I don't want to pick on the Catholics, they're just wrong. Roman Catholics believe that penance is something you go and do with a priest and receive absolution and then you can keep living. Do you all know who started the Protestant Reformation? Martin Luther. What did he do? He nailed what? 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church door. Here is his very first thesis. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You could maybe say that the Protestant Reformation was an issue of repentance. Because Martin Luther's first issue with the Roman Catholic Church was stop making repentance an action. It is a life of humility. It is a life of repentance. It is a daily coming low before God and acknowledging our sin. It is not something you go and do and have the priest do for you and keep going. That's what the Catholic Church didn't understand. That's what many people don't understand today. It's what I have to remind myself daily to repent and to die to myself. It's a daily dying. I have to daily crucify my sin. Old Abby is on the cross dying and I have to nail him back to the, with the Spirit every single day. The Christian life is a life of repentance. A life pleasing to God. It's not something I did once. It's something I come back and do every day of my life. When I bring home a paycheck for my wife, it honors God. When I, when I go and apologize to my wife for the idiot that I was, God delights over that. When I come to church, it's pleasing to God. When I go and confess my sin before someone who I've wronged, God delights in that. When I shepherd the flock at Haynes Creek, it honors God. But when I go before the shepherd as a sheep myself and repent of my sin, God rejoices over that. Heaven does not throw parties for the things that the world throws parties for. Never will. Repentance is the essence of faith. This morning, if you're thinking, you know, I've never really done a lot in my life that I think God would just be blown away at. I've lived... I've never, really lived, I've never really left this area. I mean, I've always gone to church, but I don't think I'm going to be in like the Heaven Hall of Fame or anything. I'm going to pass by. Thank you, Billy Graham. Thank you, Paul. I'm, I'm going to meet them, but I'm, don't put me up there. I just want in. Well, here's the thing. Here's the good news. If you stare down your sin in the face every single day, confess your iniquity and your unworthiness before God... Come and trust in His grace every single day of your life. Believing in the gospel is mighty and sufficient to save. And you trust in Jesus for your salvation. I promise you, you will be saved and heaven will celebrate of your repentance. It's not just about getting into heaven like it's, like it's, like it's some like master's practice round. No, when you come into heaven, they're glad you're there. It's like cheers. Oh, that's a bad analogy. Um, the point is God cares about sinners who repent and he comes after lost sheep with everything he has and he says I'm not going to lose that one 
God rejoices over sinners who repent. If you have not repented of your sins this morning, if you've never really thought about repentance, what it is, if you've only really thought about faith, but you've never thought about what it means to actually repent, acknowledge God's judgment of your sin, hate your sin, turn around and come after Jesus, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we have hardened hearts and it is only by the power of your Holy Spirit that we can turn away from ourselves and not seek to justify ourselves but come to you in humility and love and beg for forgiveness. Father, I pray this morning that you can give Haynes Creek hearts that hate sin and love Jesus. Give us repentant hearts so that we can live lives of daily repentance. And all these things we ask in your precious son's name. Amen. all of his enemies under the feet of Jesus. And he will universally, globally, and eternally declare that he's the King of kings and that he's the Lord of lords. And every eye will see, every knee will bow, and everyone will know. In verses 8 through 11, he hears the voice from heaven speaking again, and he says, Go take the scroll that is open from the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea, on the land. We keep getting a picture of this great and uh, enormous angel. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said, take and eat it. Well, that's weird. He already said, like, seal it up, right? Seal it up, don't talk about it. Now he tells him to eat it. But he says it's going to be sweet in his mouth like honey, but there's going to be bitter in his stomach. You ever eaten something that, like, it tasted good, but then, you know, didn't work so well down there? And John says, that's exactly what happened. I took, I, I took it and I ate it in, this, in, in my vision and, and sweet in my mouth, but it was bitter in my stomach. Does that sound familiar? Where do we see this? Ezekiel. Look back to Ezekiel chapter 2 and chapter 3. 
At the end of Ezekiel chapter 2, when Ezekiel is called from God to be a prophet, he says in verse 8, But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Does that sound familiar? And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it out before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. Does that sound familiar? And there was written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Does that sound familiar? Chapter 3. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Does that sound familiar? And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint have I made your forehead." Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart, hear with your ears, and go to the exiles, to your people, and speak and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. The Spirit lifted me up. I heard a voice behind me of a great earthquake. Blessed be, the glo- God, blessed be the glory of the Lord from this place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another and the sound of the wheels beside them and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. He's told to take and eat He's told that it will be sweet in his mouth. He's told to go and to talk to God's people. He's told that he will have the spirit. He's told that he will be a watchman. But he's also told that there will be many who are rebellious that won't listen. It is almost word for word in Revelation chapter 10 from Ezekiel chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 3. And I think the meaning is very simple. John is a true prophet. After the pattern of Ezekiel, John is receiving a vision from the same God of Ezekiel. God is receiving a word, or excuse me, John is receiving a word from God for God's people just as Ezekiel did. John is being told to give that word to God's people to remind them that there is salvation, but that there's also judgment. 
And because we see this parallel, that God is giving the same word that he gave to Ezekiel, now in the new covenant era of Christ, then 2,000 years later, we should hear this word and know that we can trust. We can trust John. We can trust the revelation of the Spirit of God. We can trust the revelation of the angel. We can trust the words that we hear spoken. We can trust the images as weird as they may seem. We can trust that God has spoken to us a good and faithful word and promise. God has spoken and revealed and given it to John. He has spoken and given and revealed and preserved it for us. And so it should be sweet to us. And we should trust the Lord. And we should trust the prophet John as he speaks to us God's word. When we read a passage like Revelation 10 in anticipation of Revelation 11, Revelation 10 I think is a wonderful pause where we see the glory of God where we see his greatness, his eternality, his plan of redemption, a picture of all of these Old Testament allusions and God's promise in all of them now coming true because of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come to Revelation 11 and it all gets weird again. We'll come back to that next week. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We do pray, Lord, that you would startle us with your glory. That you would help us to hear your thundering voice. And may we hear and see it through the revelation of yourself in your word and in creation and in your son. May we hear you roaring like a lion. May we see you standing over all of your creation as the Lord of all. And may we know that one day you'll send your son and all things will be made right. The king will return in all of his glory. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.